Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to welcome shareholders and analysts to Equitable's third quarter 2020 conference call and webcast. Later, we'll conduct a Q&A with participant analysis on the call. Before we begin, I'd like to refer you to slide two of the presentation regarding the company's caution regarding forward-looking statements. This presentation and comments may contain forward-looking information, including statements regarding possible future business and growth prospects for the company. You are cautioned that forward-looking statements involve risk and uncertainties, including those introduced by the COVID-19 pandemic. Certain material factors or assumptions were applied in the making of the statements and could cause results or performance to differ from forecasts or projections expressed by these statements. Equitable does not undertake or update any forward-looking statements except in accordance with applicable security laws. This call is being recorded for replay purposes on November 4th, 2020 at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. It's now my pleasure to turn the call over to Andrew Moore, President and CEO of Equitable Bank. Please proceed, Mr. Moore. Uh, thank you, Marcella, and good morning, everyone. I'd like to begin by welcoming Chadwick Westlake to our quarterly analyst calls. Chadwick is an experienced banking executive who joined our management committee as Senior Vice President and Chief Financial Officer on Monday. Chadwick will introduce himself on today's call. As a reminder, Chadwick's appointment was one piece of a broader plan to establish a streamlined management committee structure that is better organized around the way we think and act as a challenger bank in serving our customers and addressing the market. In addition to Chadwick's appointment, we created two new operating groups, Personal Banking, led by Mahima Badar as SVP and Group Head, incorporates EQ Bank, our single-family mortgage businesses, the accumulation lines of business, and the distribution of deposit products through the financial planning channel. Mahima's been at Equitable since 2016 and has distinguished herself in running EQ Bank, corporate development, and marketing before this appointment. Commercial banking, led by Darren Lorimer as SVP and Group Head, includes business enterprise solutions, a specialized finance group, multifamily insured mortgage lending, the commercial finance group, and Bennington. Many of you know Darren from our investor day a couple of years ago, and he's done a fantastic job running our commercial mortgage businesses since arriving from TD in 2015. The balance of the leadership committee are Ron Tratch, our chief risk officer, Dan Dickinson, Chief Information Officer, and Jody Sperling, Chief Human Resources Officer, who is also this year's Report on Business Best Executive Winner in the HR category, one of only 12 Canadians to receive this honor in recognition of her outstanding contributions to people, leadership, and talent development. Ron joins us on the call today, as does John Samoe's Vice President of Finance. John will deliver a report to you this morning, while Ron will be available for Q&A. Since the beginning of the pandemic, our team has done some really good work to serve our customers and position Equitable to contribute to the economic recovery and the broader societal goals of supporting home ownership and encouraging Canadians to save more during these difficult times. By 
staying true to our purpose of driving change in Canadian banking to rich people's lives as Canada's challenger bank. We've pivoted to put more resources to providing liquidity to customers in the assured mortgage lending market, both multi-unit residential and single-family, and achieved high-quality asset growth in Q3, which we expect will continue in Q4. Struck a more constructive posture to underwriting in our alternative single-family business on improved market conditions towards the end of the quarter, and began Q4 with an increase in that mortgage pipeline. Assisted homeowners with loan payment deferrals and found, as we hoped, that this support allowed borrowers to resume regular payment schedules, such as just 30 basis points of our loans are still on deferral. Introduced new EQ Bank joint account services with more services on the way in Q4 and registered dramatic growth in both EQ Bank deposits and new account openings as Canadians unmistakably state their preference for all digital banking. We're encouraged by improvement in business conditions since Q1 and the resilience of the housing market. Taking note of this and other externalities and having reported best ever quarterly performance yesterday, we think we're set up for a good finish to the year. We'll share our view of the future as much as we can today while acknowledging that the pandemic has created more uncertainty than is typical in the future path of the economy. What we can say with certainty is the advantages of an agile workforce, flexible cloud-enabled technology stack, and the broad capabilities we enjoy across personal and commercial services will serve us well as we continue our challenger quest to build a better bank for all. I'm very pleased with Equal's position within an industry where, in, where change is accelerating because of the pandemic. Now a synopsis of Q3 performance. Diluted EPS was 35% ahead of Q3 last year on a reported basis and 41% above the level we recorded in Q2. On the strength of record earnings, return on shareholders' equity, our true north, moved to 19.8% on a reported basis, well ahead of our 10-year average of 16.8%. Meantime, book value per common share grew 12% on $9.28 from a year ago and 5% since June 30, 2020. Based on consensus estimates, I know the strength of this performance was an upside surprise, but the reasons for it are not. Results reflected good fundamentals in the business and in the market. Once again, employee productivity and efficiency were industry-leading, even though the vast majority of our workforce remains in work-from-home mode. Asset growth was high quality. The pivot and emphasis to insure mortgages produced strong securitization gains, and we benefited from reduced funding costs. We expect many of these factors to prevail in Q4. Additionally, Q4 will see an uplift as the cost net of funding cost savings to insure $687 million of single-family assets earlier this year is reduced by a further $2 million and then removed entirely in Q1 2021 with benefits accruing each quarter thereafter. The premiums paid on that insurance net of funding cost savings reduced EPS by $0.09 cents in Q3 but give us good funding costs and capital benefits to look forward to over a period of years. Q4 financial performance will also benefit as a result of our decision to drop rates on EQ Bank by 20 basis points at the beginning of the quarter and by strong earnings by historical standards from securitization activities. By quarter end, positive earnings coupled with slower risk-weighted asset growth pushed the bank's CT1 ratio above the top end of our target range of 14%, up a full percentage point year over year and 30 basis points from June. Both our set one and total capital ratios are at the high end of the Canadian banking industry. 
Through the end of 2020, we expect those ratios to remain relatively stable as the benefit of additional retained earnings added to our capital base will be used to support increases in our risk-weighted assets. As you know, planned dividend increases are on hold because of regulatory guidance from Osby to the banking industry. Even so, our most recent dividend declaration was 6% above last year. Our low payout ratio, which was 9% in Q3, shows we have room to maintain our dividend. One of the ways the banking industry has helped Canadians during the pandemic is through payment deferrals. For its part, Equitable has been proactive in working with customers in need so that they can get back to a normal payment cadence. This approach has paid dividends for customers and our bank. At the end of October, we had just 280 accounts on active deferrals, representing 0.3% of total balances. Independent economic forecasts we used to establish our allowances under IFRS have improved since June 30th. On slide 8, we included the base case of Moody's forecasts at September 30th compared to June 30th and March 31st. Of the key variables tracked, all showed improvement over the next 12 months. Recall that we use a risk-weighted average of these scenarios to determine our allowances. As a result of this positive change, we reduced our allowances to performing loans categorized as Stage 1 and Stage 2 in Q3, which led to a modest reversal of Stage 1 and Stage 2 provisions in our income statement. This is accounted with, within our provision for credit losses as a net benefit of $2.9 million. Stage 3 provisions, which are those related to impaired loans, were down by $2.9 million from the preceding quarter, primarily due to a lower level of provisions required on our mortgage portfolio and a reduced level of net impaired lease formations. If the economic forecasts produced by Moody's improve and borrowers behave as expected, PCL should reduce again in future quarters with a benefit to earnings. If the economic picture unfolds in line with our base case, we will over-reserve by $6.5 million. As you know, the housing market has been resilient in the face of, a broader, of the broader economic backdrop, which will certainly have a positive impact on realized losses going forward compared to the concerns we had when the pandemic was unfolding back in March, even if delinquencies move up, as we expect. As I said at the outset, from the perspective of loan growth, Equal did its part to keep the economy moving as all of the bank's retail and commercial businesses continue to provide capital for household formation and business purposes. Total loan principal increased by $1.6 billion year over year. Looking deeper at this growth shows that we did make a pivot in favor of insured mortgages, both our retail and commercial businesses. We've chosen to provide liquidity to these segments to address the needs of Canadians for single-family homeownership and for more multi-housing stock, which is in short supply. For the bank, the benefit of this deployment is that all of this prime business is fully insured against credit loss, and spreads have been wider than was typically the case over the last few years. Within retail, prime single-family loans grew 1.1 billion, or 17% since Q3 2019, and 2% in the quarter itself. We combine internally generated prime originations with those acquired from third parties. <clears throat> I'm very pleased to note that our internal business has generated record monthly levels of prime single-family originations since May, as we continue to expand our market presence with mortgage broker partners. We expect growth to continue in Q4 using this blended approach to origination. As expected, given tighter risk tolerances, balances within our alternative single-family portfolio were down 3% year over year. However, we subsequently moved our alternative single-family underwriting criteria closer to pre-COVID-19 parameters 
as our assessment of risk in the market has changed for the better. This transition occurred late in the quarter, and we've seen a positive response from brokers and a corresponding improvement in our mortgage pipeline and origination since then. In our commercial business, loan balances grew 9% year over year. There were two drivers. Insured multis were up by $355 million, or 10% over last year. And conventional commercial grew by $342 million, or 9%, again due to strong originations in the multi-unit residential construction sector, or more favorable comparative positions. In response to some of the conversations I've had with investors and analysts, we've included more disclosure about our commercial book in the MDNA, and I hope you find this useful. It's harder to describe this portfolio with, the ag with aggregates metrics than the single-family book. That said, having taken a deep dive into the book, the bottom line is we are feeling good about the overall credit quality and not seeing any notable uptick in problem accounts or identifying individual loans where we expect losses to arise. We think the dynamics in the multi-space are very positive. There continues to be a significant gap between tenant demand and rental apartment housing stock in many Canadian cities. And in past recessions, and to date this year, landlords have had great success in collecting rent. Equal has been in the multi-space for most of its 50-year existence, and that experience is serving us well. Looking ahead, we believe loan balances in the bank's established businesses will grow in the fourth quarter, as will balances within our decumulation businesses, which we are confident will really hit their stride in 2021. Not to be missed in this quarter of record performance is outstanding growth registered by EQ Bank. EQ deposits sat at $4.3 billion at quarter end, which reflects growth of $1 billion in Q3 itself. In context, it took us four quarters to attract our first billion of EQ deposits. So this is tangible momentum. Meanwhile, account openings increased 68% year over year, meaning 149,000 Canadians now rely on EQ for great digital banking services. Per month, Q3 account openings were over three times higher than the monthly average prior to COVID-19. These stats tell the story of a banking platform that caters perfectly to Canadians' increasing preference for all digital banking. EQ is making the most of this environment by creating some really elegant and valuable offerings that encourage Canadians to fully embrace technology-enabled banking, challenger bank style. In Q3, we introduced our joint savings plus accounts, and customers are really taking advantage of this service, which is reflected in the figures I just quoted. Setting up a joint savings plus account is entirely virtual and painless, and I really encourage all of our shareholders to give it a try if you haven't already. The EQ team has done an outstanding job of creating a simple, intuitive, and fast opening process. Our international money transfer service has also gained a lot of fans since its February launch. Again, if you haven't already, I would encourage you to try it. Once you do, I suspect you will never return to the costly old-fashioned approach offered by traditional institutions. We've been successful in reducing our cost of customer acquisition to attract new accounts through programs such as Refer a Friend and the more effective deployment of digital marketing resources in the Smart Money campaign we were running during the quarter. One of the advantages our bank enjoys is our cloud-enabled technology stack, which makes it easier and faster for us to introduce products and service innovations. We have, in fact, stepped up the pace of launches this year after moving to the cloud last year, and we are attacking our technology roadmap much more aggressively. In Q4, we'll introduce RSP and TFSA capabilities and another big launch is on track for Q1 of 2021. I'm convinced that it's difficult for any investor to understand the merits of equitables and investment without setting up an account and trying some of the functionality. 
with the international money transfer capability being a shiny example of a great service with a wonderful customer experience. EQ Bank is a strategic asset for us. It provides both an additional channel market for our bank and a platform for providing important new services. <coughs> Overall, compared to what we expected early in the crisis, retail and securitization funding markets have proven to be much more liquid and efficient, and GIC rates have decreased from mid-March onward at a faster pace than the relevant interest rate benchmarks. This makes funding very cost-competitive. As previously advertised, I'd now like to like Chadwick to introduce himself to you before John provides his report. We're really excited to welcome Chadwick, who is exceedingly well qualified to oversee all core finance functions, as well as the bank's treasury and securitization activities, corporate development, and legal. Chadwick? All right, thanks very much, Andrew. And good morning, everyone. Equitable has an excellent reputation within Canadian banking. I'm excited to be here serving together with this talented team that is so focused on customers, our shareholders, and the communities in which we operate. Throughout my career, I closely watched Equitable. Its rise from a small trust company into one of nine publicly traded banks that are members of the S&P TSX Composite Index is impressive. I personally don't believe Equitable gets enough credit in the capital markets for its value creation capabilities and its overall franchise value. This is a full-fledged, innovative, and truly differentiated bank that should be trading at a much higher multiple. Coupled with a continued growth mandate and increasing solutions for Canadians, we'll be working hard to earn a better valuation in the months ahead. As I just officially joined as CFO on Monday this week, I won't be making substantive comments about performance this quarter, but I want to share my confidence in and excitement about the path ahead for this institution. As for my own background, I spent nearly two decades with Scotiabank, lastly serving as Executive Vice President for Enterprise Productivity in Canadian Banking Finance. I gained deep experience in setting strategy and implementing bank-wide productivity improvement efforts including growing revenue, reducing costs, and driving sustainable efficiencies. To be honest, given my previous role, I looked on with some envy as Equitable regularly reported an efficiency ratio that was much better than the big banks. This is a key advantage of branchless digital bank structure. I also served as the Chief Financial Officer for Scotia's Canadian Banking Division and many other roles across the bank, including credit risk, customer experience, operations, directly within business lines, corporate development and finance, among others. I think all of this has prepared me well to take on a new challenge at a bank that truly thinks and acts differently in pursuing value creation for all stakeholders, but that is still well granted in all the appropriate capital and risk management disciplines. With that, for this quarter, I'll turn things over to our Vice President of Finance, John Simo. Thanks, Chadwick, and good morning, everyone. As Andrew mentioned in his opening comments, Equitable's Q3 was its best ever, whether the comparison is made on an adjusted basis or reported. Reported figures included $4.1 million of net mark-to-market gains. On an adjusted basis, net income grew 30% over last year and 44% compared to Q2. The change analysis slide in our deck quantifies the quarter-over-quarter impact of various drivers of our profitability. The largest contributors were net interest income, growth, and gains on securitization. From this slide, you will note the change in operating costs of $0.11 cents per share. 
Although total operating costs increased sequentially by 3%, our efficiency ratio for the quarter was only 35.7% compared to 39.2% in the preceding quarter. This is because the increase in net interest income and gains on securitization outpaced the growth of our expenses, which is the numerator in the calculation. Expenses in Q4 should be consistent with Q3 as we continue to push forward the digitization of our bank and service offerings, but in a very efficient manner. Moving on, NII was up 8% year over year due to growth in our average asset balances of 12% and despite a six basis point decrease in NIM. As Andrew mentioned, the decrease in NIM was primarily driven by amortization of premiums paid to insure $687 million of alternative single-family mortgages in Q2, net of associated funding cost advantages, and a mixed shift towards prime mortgages and lower-yielding liquid assets. NII was also affected as we kept deposit rates slightly above benchmarks in Q3. In early Q4, we moved rates down in response to the market, and this should help our earnings by $0.11 in Q4. On a final note, the bank completed a $200 million three-year fixed-rate deposit note issuance late in the quarter and on attractive terms. It was priced at 150 basis points over Government Canada bonds and carries a coupon of 1.774%. Support for the offering came from 37 invest investor participants. We look forward to rewarding investor confidence with a sustained deposit note issuance program, which is part of our broader strategy of continuing to diversify our funding sources by creating products that are attractive to customers, investors, and our bank. Now back to Andrew for final comments. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, as we always do at this time of the year, we are developing our budgets for next year. This is not an easy task given the lack of visibility afforded by the pandemic, but I can assure you our objectives will be both thoughtful and ambitious. Before they are board approved, we obviously won't be commenting on any new goals. Speaking of change in banking, one of the things I would really like to see this next year is Canada finally adopting an open banking system. Policymakers have been studying how to do this for a number of years, and it's now time for them to act. With our cloud-enabled technology stack and ability to leverage our flexible middle tier to provide and consume application programming interfaces, ours and third parties, Equal is ready today to bring the benefits of open banking to our customers. Tomorrow afternoon, I will deliver the keynote address to Canada's Open Banking Forum. I will be adding Equitable's voice to this call to action. In summary, I think we've shown pretty clearly this year the good that can be accomplished in a very short time by the Equitable team. We've contributed in small but meaningful ways to Canada's economic recovery and the recovery of customers who faced financial strife earlier in the year. Our capital liquidity positions are strong. The improvement in business conditions is encouraging. Changes in consumer behavior in response to the pandemic favor our business model and digital foundation. And after recording all-time quarterly, record quarterly earnings, we're ready to work hard to create even more value going forward as Canada's challenger bank. This concludes our prepared remarks. Uh, operator, can you please open the line for Q&A? At this time, I'd like to remind everyone, in order to ask a question, please press star and the number one on your telephone keypad. Your first question comes from the line of Jeff Kwan from RBC Capital. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Um, I have a question with, with the, I guess it seems like a, a bit of being more disciplined or the pullback within the non-prime residential segment on originations. 
Um, are you seeing your competitors, especially your biggest competitor, doing the same, or are you kind of, let's call it, willingly ceding market share? Yeah, I think, Jeff, as we, as we spoke about uh, probably the last quarter, and maybe the one before that, I think we, 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 we acknowledged we were, we were losing market share, or, or that we were deliberately ceding market share. Uh, you know, essentially, what we did was cut back our loan to values uh, at the end of March, beginning of April, in the face of the pandemic, to, to try and to protect the balance sheet and, and with a view that home prices could be dropping. Um, you know, I think with the benefit of hindsight, we were probably overly cautious, frankly. Um, but, but uh, you know, we're prudent bankers, as you know. So, uh, but obviously now, with the, the impact of much lower interest rates and a sort of, you know, the economy getting adjusted to this new normal, we're feeling, you know. A bit, a bit more confident about the, the credit metrics being slightly more expensive. Okay, and then um, I mean, I, I, if you were to update your credit loss model to only adjust for Moody's forecast as of October, I'm not sure if it's out now. Just wondering, like, how would that impact your Q4 loss provisioning? Essentially, I'm just trying to understand the comment in the MDA, MDNA around the timing of potential uh, realization of recoveries of losses uh, if the macro uh, environment matches your assumptions? I'll, I'll let Ron deal with some of the detail there. But what, what I can tell you is that the overlays that we apply in the RFRS 9 model effectively slow down the release of reserves. Um, so, so even if we ran the models with the same economic uh, criteria, we're, we're going to be slowly releasing reserves because of this overlay dynamic. Uh, Ron's much more deeply in the numbers on the models and so on. Uh, yeah, but so, so thanks for the question, Jeff. Just with respect to the, the October forecast, um, it would be premature for me to comment on that, but our expectation is that they would be largely stable with the forecast that we saw in uh, August and September as the, as the Q3 came to a close. So we're not expecting a lot of volatility uh, in the quarter at this point. Um, now that obviously, um, we have to wait and see how things pan out because with the November and December forecast, but at this point, um, I think the comment I'd leave you with is, is relative stability at this stage. Okay. Uh, and then just my last question is um, maybe whether or not from equitable specifically, but just maybe broader activity in the market you're seeing so far in Q4. Are you seeing the momentum that we saw in the summer carry through uh, into Q4? Are we starting to see cooling, whether or not it's just some of the pent-up demand is, is, is uh, dissipating or just the regular seasonality of, of being in Q4? I think there's still some sort of pent-up demand working its way through the market. Certainly we would anticipate that you generally sort of see housing markets uh, move into a sort of bit more of a seasonal lull as you approach the holidays, but of course this year you know, might be different just because you know, so much so much with demand is taken out of the market in the you know, March, April, May period. Uh, so far, you know, demand is, is strong in the markets. Okay, great. Thank you. Tunke from Stifle, your line is open. Well, hey, good morning, team. Um, just a couple of quick questions for me. So, um, with respect to the commentary of returning um, underwriting standards on the alt book back to pre-pandemic levels, um, what what do you expect, or where do you think the potential impact on asset yields um, from that decision could go for that line of business? Sorry, I didn't quite catch that last little bit of the... With the change in underwriting, the pre-pandemic levels, the change in the LTV back. So, so what's, what's it doing for volume? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we're sort of starting to hit, uh, you know, good 
volumes, kind of consistent volumes of year-over-year year type originations right now, sort of 300 million a month type of thing in all, all to this, this time of the year, which is pretty strong. Um, and just, by the way, we sort of said returning, uh, return to pre-pandemic kind of underwriting is a bit of a shorthand. Um, you know, we certainly look at market segment by segment, so we're still concerned about things like, uh, you know, commodity prices and energy, energy producing provinces, for example. Uh, so, so some of those, you know, we're still in a more conservative framework than we were in, uh, in February. And um, what's the potential pickup in asset yields on that uh, change in underwriting standard? Uh, well, it doesn't really change the yields on the new originations. The yields, uh, you know, we tend to haven't really moved up or, up or down, but the spreads are good. I, mean, I think, as you saw in the in the quarter, with you know, spreads continue to be pretty strong. Okay, and then with that respect, um, you know, as you've alluded to in your comments, Andrew, you know, um, funding and you know, deposit market looking very good right now. Um, we saw a sizable drop in, in deposit rates in the quarter. Um, any upcoming, you know, puts or takes to, you know, what could have a larger impact on deposit yields that you're seeing in the market right now, be it in the GIC market or as you expand your um, EQ Bank offering, any uh, commentary on, on that? You know, certainly, I think there might be room slowly over, over the next little while to, to eke down rates in, in EQ Bank, uh, but we're not planning that right now. We like to have a, a very sort of Good everyday offer for all consumers, and so we're at one and a half percent today in EQ Bank, which uh, for any of you who haven't don't have an account yet, I take, take advantage of that. But I think it'll be that'll be around for a while. Yes, you probably will see us come out with very attractive TFSA and RSP rates um, to, to try and get some traction in that product offering when we launch. Um, of course, we have very small balances there, so it's not terribly material in terms of the earnings. But uh, we're seeing. Um, we're seeing, you know, good, good, good tight spreads on the GIC and the GIC market, which is attractive. And of course, the, the longer-term picture, really, on funding and you know, the, the bigger win to look forward to next year is is uh, going into the covered bond market, where we expect to have funding cost about 30 basis points through GICs. And as we build that program out over a period of years, that that's probably the most material thing we can do for the spreads. Okay, appreciate that. And then um, just one last question from me. With respect to the comments around workout arrangements with, with borrowers that came off of deferrals, can you talk to at all within that group, like how many of those, you know, people that, you know, that are still, that would have gone to workout arrangements, um, you know, can you, are you having conversations with them about, you know, do you advise them to sell, just sell their home into a strong housing market? I mean, what kind of conversations are you having with that? And when you say there's been few and far workouts, is that because, you know, some people that were going to have trouble making their payments, you told them to just sell their home, and they did? Like, does that, that how does that factor into to the, um, the commentary on workout? Yeah, I mean, as we mentioned in the, in the MDNA, we, you know, we're basically following the same procedures recommended by CMHC and the mortgage insurers. Uh, so, you know, in principle, if somebody's income has been disrupted but is about to get back into good shape, then you know, we're prepared to work with them to obviously see them through that next gap. Um, you know, uh, if, though, as you mentioned, if there's no prospect of, of uh, income stability returning, in the, at least in the medium short term, me, medium term, then you know, of clearly preserving equity in the home may be the best answer, especially with a relatively strong housing market. So we're certainly seeing some of our customers choosing to go down that route. 
we have it at very few customers. The last time I checked, about 10, 10 different loans had moved on to interest only. So uh, the customers, we, we asked them just, just to pay the interest on the mortgage, uh, 10 individual homeowners. So you can see very small in the scheme of the books. And we, you know, we are trying to, to work with our, with our customers, obviously, who, you know, as, you, as we all know, certain elements of the economy have been hard hit by this pandemic. So we certainly uh, want to support them through that. Uh, but so far, um, the consumer seems to be in remarkably good shape. Uh, that's it for me. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. Jeff Fenwick from Cormac Securities. Your line is open. Good morning, everybody. Morning, Jeff. Um, you know, and. Andrew, I wanted to start off with EQ Bank uh, today and the growth of the deposits that you've seen there that have been very strong. I'm just wondering if you could offer some commentary on your perspectives around deposit stability, uh, you know, meaning you know, this is a relatively new source of growth for you. Uh, it's an it's a online platform that you've made very easy to, to bring in your deposits, and maybe there's a bit of a risk that they could take them out quickly if, if rates change. So any commentary you could offer around how that's performed, uh, what customers have been doing as rates have changed uh, that you're offering in the marketplace, and how we should think about that as well in terms of you know, maybe carrying excess liquidity on your balance sheet just to, to manage that exposure. There's a lot, a lot to unpack there, Jeff. Um, but yeah. the, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and so that's what I expect, thoughtful, thoughtful analysts. Um, so uh, you know, clearly when deposits are growing fast, we tend to, we tend to view a new deposit as being uh, somewhat more flighty than, a, than an established deposit, so the age of the deposit matters to us. So I try to just stand back even further. Our treasury team think about this issue a lot, and they hold a lot of liquidity. Uh, so one of the reasons why we're holding as much liquidity on the balance sheet today is because of the assessments our treasury team are making in about you know, exactly the area that you're talking about. Um, as deposits age, though, we, 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 do, we do observe more stability in those deposits. And when we uh, introduce other services, so the things, some of the things I've been talking about, like joint accounts, we expect to be more sticky. People that are using our international money transfer service, people that are paying bills or having their payroll come into the accounts, clearly it's becoming a more uh, stable uh, part of their um, financial lives. Um, so uh, so we, we track deposits that we regard as being more stable versus less. We do see a feature in the market, which is, I think, quite an undesirable feature, a couple of our competitors come out with these sort of short-term promotions and you see a, some, of, some of our customers flipping money back and forth between our accounts and other customers. But that's becoming an increasingly smaller amount of the, smaller part of the, uh, um, of, of our customer base. And we, you know, continue to see people become, you know, start to use a, a broader range of services and it's becoming more of a franchise for them where they can have their core banking. Um, and so, so to say, we, we got our eye on it very close to be holding plenty of liquidity against it. Um, the other thing that's important to remember is that we have a $200,000 limit on each of the accounts. The vast majority of these accounts operate under CDIC limits, this $100,000 CDIC limit. So, um, uh, you know, we think that they're very stable from that perspective. And we would, of course, be able to use the trust company to extend more uh, deposit insurance if, uh, if, if we felt that that was a stress on the system. And, um, you know, this is becoming obviously a, a very strategic asset for the businesses you've mentioned. I mean, when do you begin to push harder on uh, selling loan products uh, through to, uh, to that consumer base? I mean, you've already got the customer under your, uh, under your roof there. Um, how, how do you think about beginning to ramp that, uh, the offerings out to that customer base? 
Yeah, I think over the next year you'll start to see us offering products on both sides of the consumer's balance sheet. Um, clearly, that's um, you know that's that's where we want to go. Um, the challenge we have today is that the our approach with EQ Bank is to be you know, fantastic uh, digital, all digital experience. Uh, a mortgage business is still somewhat clunky um, for everybody, including uh, everybody, all, all industry actors in terms of getting appraisals, uh, the, the paperwork has to flow around, that something of a different experience. So we've been reluctant to brand those things, two things together. But as we now have got you know, so many more customers now in EQ Bank, um, we're, going to, we're going to be biting that bullet and, and moving to, to having a sort of broader relationship on both sides of the balance sheet. Okay. And maybe just one more question here uh, on expenses. I mean, you've done a good job of holding the line this year and, and deferring a lot of spend uh, just as we go through this uh, pandemic. I mean, how long can you how long can you defer some of those spend uh, spends on products and people? Uh, are are we at some point going to have to just see that that run rate step up uh, fairly meaningfully if you want to continue with all these uh, growth initiatives? I mean, certainly, I think you see it sort of eke up for sure. You know, we we have never promised. You know, we've I think we've talked about, talked about efficiency ratios in the 40 to 42 percent range you know, over over the longer term, which is still you know best in Canadian, best in class in Canadian banking. But at those kinds of expense ratios, we expect to be able to continue to grow the franchise quite fast. Um, if we if we were just bolting down the hatches and not choosing to grow, and then clearly you could run at lower levels. But that's that's not how we think about it. Okay, great. That's helpful. That's all I had. Thank you. Stephen Boland from Raymond James. Your line is open. Uh, good morning, everyone. Just a, a couple quick questions, Andrew. You seem a lot more optimistic in terms of, um, you know, just the outlook for housing. But I, I think in the MDNA, and I apologize if this is wrong, but you, you, you talk about modest growth for, for Q4. Uh, I'm not sure if that's tied to uh, the alternative segment or overall. Um, so is, is really the growth, or are you really looking at 2021 as, as, as really the acceleration of, uh, of getting that growth back uh, on board? Yeah, I mean, we, we will see growth in in Q4 in the alt business. Uh, you know, it's tough to really grow. I mean, as you've observed in past years, where, where we really see the growth is in Q2s and Q3s of every year. That's when you get the seasonality flowing through in the mortgage business. Uh, Canadians quite are wise people. They don't like to move in February when the snow's deep on the ground. So that's that's the seasonality that we typically observe. Again, it might be slightly different this year just because of some of the pent-up demand, but we're not trying to, to build that in. But... Uh, yeah, no, I'm feeling pretty good about the market right now. Um, it's, it's, uh, it seems to be reasonably strong without being overly effervescent, in my view. Okay, uh, that's good. And, and just a second, I just want to go to the, the provision uh, for credit losses and the recovery that you reported. Um, I mean, you, you set up a large provision, uh, you know, early in the year based on, on economic modeling. Um, so. Is that now in a position where you can, and, and maybe this quarter, just talk about the release this quarter, if you can maybe remind me if it, if it was tied to specific loans or the specific modeling on the economic front. So if, the, if your view on the economic modeling or modeling is getting better, should we continue to see a portion of that, that large PCL uh, kind of recover in, in future quarters? Um, I'll let Ron deal with the details, but I think you know, clearly, uh, as we indicated in the script, you know, we, we do believe that if the, if the economic scenario unfolds 
along the line with our base case, then we, we do have reserves to release, and they'll, they'll probably come in staged over a number, over a, over a period of time. Uh, you know, the only, and Andrew's right, and the only comment I would add is that those, those numbers are modeled, um, and, and they're driven largely by economic forecasts. And so we, we respect the forecasts and, and the outputs that come out of those models. Uh, we, we do take a hard look at them to see if they believe they match up with how we things are going to unfold. But we do respect that IFRS 9 expected credit loss process. And as we indicated, uh, we gave some, a little bit of a breakdown in terms of, you know, the, the base case scenario. And if things were to unfold under a base case, the, the level that would be, uh, we would be effectively over-reserved. And then similarly, if, if things uh, took a turn for the worse. But um, it is a modeled number. And, and as, as forecasts, moderate or, or become more pessimistic, uh, you could expect to see um, some potential changes there. It's a, it's a volatility factor that the entire industry is, is grappling with, um, but we continue to respect that, that process as part of the accounting framework. And uh, you know, we, we do stand behind our models and that they are, I think, largely aligned with, with what, um, what, what could transpire, but we're very comfortable with the way the book's performing, uh, practically speaking, today. It's really interesting, Steve, when you look at the single-family models in particular. So we use unemployment as one of the proxies, as one of the, as one of the variables that drives the model. Then if you look at the Bank of Canada uh, Monetary Policy Report, you'll see how the unemployment is, is so bifurcated in this, in this particular recession where those with lower incomes who are not homeowners are those that are particularly bearing the brunt of unemployment, and it's, 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 it's really sad for that group. Uh, you know, our customers, homeowners and self-employed folks, are actually standing up pretty well in this. Um, and, and capturing some of these nuances, our models is, you know, every every recession, every event is always slightly different. So models are going to naturally, you know, our, our team is a really top-notch modeling team. Uh, but capturing all these nuances and, uh, is, is going to be tricky for us. Okay, that's great color. Thank you. Jamie Glowen from National Bank, your line is open. Yeah, thanks, uh, and good morning. Morning, Jim. Um, yeah, first off, really appreciate the uh, the extra disclosure on the commercial book. Um, just uh, one one follow up on that mixed mixed use properties. Can you uh, give us a little bit of description as to uh, you know what's what's involved in the mixed use properties and why those are viewed as uh, as lower risk? Let's say. Well, well, typically they might be. Uh, I mean, it could be a, a small apartment building with. Um, with retail on the ground floor, that we would, as soon as you've got any kind of business within the building, then you would, we would typically classify it mixed use. You know, if you think about uh, particularly Toronto real estate, say, all along the Danforth, where you've got you know four or five apartments above a storefront, you know that's mixed use in our view. Well, that's what we would call mixed use. Uh, these these have been very desirable assets actually, as we've seen increased urbanisation, you're seeing more foot traffic in those areas. Some of them are getting redeveloped into condo buildings as well. And typically, these are very attractive to investors that are themselves fairly well healed. So, you, you, so even through this, uh, even these small businesses are getting affected in the basement. We find that we've got owners that have got the wherewithal to to stand up. Um, and then you've got rental out of the apartment buildings. Some of the some of our borrowers are people that operate the businesses on the ground floor or whatever, um, and they tend to have very high beacon scores. We tend to find that they're, they're well over 700. Okay, great, thanks. Um, just uh, ch chipping to the securitization 
gains on sale of securitized uh, loans volume is obviously uh, really high, but it, it looks like the gain on sale margin is, uh, is is pretty elevated as well, like you know two to three times higher than what would be a normal run rate. Um, obviously, spreads have widened here a little bit, but uh, maybe you can talk about that margin and the sustainability of that margin. Uh, as well as volumes going forward, like should we be thinking about gain on sale as as you know still elevated in future quarters? Certainly, as we indicated in Q4, we expect it to be continue to be strong in Q4. Um, uh, you know, the, this does depend on some dynamics around allocation of the Canada mortgage bond spreads on new loans. Um, you know, so uh, we're seeing lots of opportunity generally in the CMHC. Uh, uh, Securitization uh, area generally, um, you know, would expect that this won't prevail through all of next year. But um, even next year, I think we might see better gains than you would historically model for equitable. Okay, that's helpful. <clears throat> um, the um, just a couple of clarification questions to wrap up then around uh, around the TFSA and RRSP. Is that uh, that will be released in 2021 and will it just be a savings product to start or when can we expect to see some more uh you know quote-unquote sophisticated products in those uh in those accounts uh so it's actually going to be a 2020 release so uh we, we've got the code running now it's a matter of putting it into production and uh promoting uh promoting this for the customer base uh to start with it'll be a, a simple gic uh Saving and a savings plus uh, demand deposit uh, product, uh, but clearly as we start to build deposits with that kind of longer term investor view, TFSAs and uh, RSPs, then I think that's the opportunity potentially to start to evolve people into slightly more sophisticated forms of wealth management going forward. Uh, so I, th I think you can think about that as being our entree into that market, but we're starting with a fairly simple plain vanilla product. Okay, and uh, last one is uh, with respect to the covered bond uh, market. Does uh, does the access to that market rely on uh, either you know OSFI or other regulatory approvals before or launching? And are you having discussions with uh, with those bodies today that gives you confidence you'll be able to tap covered bonds in 2021? Uh, no, it doesn't rely on uh, any regulatory approvals. The um, that there are already provisions, uh, also provisions that set up the capacity for covered bonds. Uh, we do believe that there's a public policy argument that there should be higher covered bond capacity for smaller institutions. Um, we've made these arguments to regulators, and we're hopeful that they are they're landing in on sort of fertile ground. But, but our program doesn't rely, the economic program doesn't rely on that being, being achieved. Uh, I think there are lots, though, there are lots of good reasons as to why. Uh, you know, from a public policy benefit to make the Canadian banking system more competitive, um, smaller institutions and, and, and small, smaller institutions should have uh, have higher capacity within within this framework. And I, I do think that that's actually uh, well, I'm fairly hopeful that will be the the, the, the land in the, the place where the regulators land to. So is is that the constraining factor then? Is that the the I believe it's a five and a half percent cap right now, but it's been expanded for through COVID up to I think ten. Uh, is that is that what's constraining your ability to tap into covered bonds, or is there uh, investor demand, uh, or you know maybe explain why uh, why we shouldn't see covered bonds sooner? 
Well, I think you know we would have if, if COVID hadn't hit, you would have seen covered bonds this year. Uh, so we deliberately, you know, first of all, our teams were dealing with a lot of other issues when COVID hit, and we were trying to work from home. I was also somewhat skeptical that you'd be able to do a new issue uh, in the European buyer markets as a new entrant to the market in the middle of a pandemic. So we we dialed back on the investment. Uh, I think that, that judgment again, with hindsight, probably we could be could be accessing the market around now if we'd done some of the other uh, structural things we need to do to get the program up and running. Uh, so we, we basically down pens for about three to four months in terms of actually getting the program going. Our teams are now working away on it, but that you know then we've got year-end ahead of us and so on. So uh, that will constrain us now to, to not being able to get an offering away until next year sometime. I see. Thanks very much. Thank you. Again, if you'd like to ask a question, please press star and the number one on your telephone keypad. Your next question comes from Graham Riding from TD Securities. Your line is open. Hi, uh, good morning. Morning, Graham. So maybe I'll just start with the uh, um, the reserves that that you released and sort of where you're sitting today. So it, your uh, allows for credit losses versus your base case assumptions. It, I think it's uh, 6.5 million that you're over reserved right now. But there's some assumptions there over the next 12 months and also over the next two to five years. So how should we think about the cadence, you know, if the world plays out according to that base case assumption? Is that 6.5 million potential release more weighted towards how things play out over the next 12 months as opposed to longer than that? I, yeah, we haven't spent a lot of time Thinking about that, Ron. Well, what, what I would say, you know, that base case is the most likely case, and so um, that's the way that we most have, the case we most heavily weight, and that that um, the forecasting service suggests is the most likely outcome. Um, they'll recognize that the, the expected credit loss that we take is over, well, over, when a stage one is over the next 12 months and then stage two is lifetime on the loan. So now we have a relatively short book. So uh, if we stayed with a base case, we would expect to see about $6.5 million less actual loss formation over about the next 18 months. Um, but where that would be reflected um, is if the base case continued, I would expect that forecasts become slightly more positive um, to reflect that. And then our, our, our actual expected credit loss from embedded loss, not recognized loss, would start to be recognized in, in subsequent quarters. I don't know if that, if that helps or confuses, yeah. but uh, no, it is a little that, tricky. That helps. that helps, but I guess, you know, the, the, the potential timing of this, uh, what you've over-reserved relative to that base case is, uh, you know, are we looking at the next 12 months? period or we're looking at sort of the next couple of quarters like that sort of timing is uh, is what, what I was getting at yeah like, I think it's, it's probably more likely a 12-month kind of cycle of release because uh, as I mentioned earlier there's a there's a model boss plus there's an overlay that, that that in effect slows the release of, of the effect of it is to slow the release of earnings uh, to, to try not to make these these things too high frequency uh, you tend to, if you if you suddenly have a step function downward move in uh, in economic outcomes, we immediately book it. So that there's a sort of high frequency downward take the reserves view because you don't want to be under reserved. But then there's a the, the, effectively a, a slowing of the release that is not not quite the same. So it's probably 
it'd probably bleed back quarter by quarter rather than be suddenly seeing us release six and a half million in one quarter, for example. And I, I think that's yeah. Perfect, understood. Um, one thing that's area that's getting a bit of attention right now is the is the condo market, um, particularly in the, in the GTA. But you're obviously you know you're lending both on the retail side, I assume, but uh, also on the commercial condo development side. Can you just talk to your risk appetite there and, and how you're feeling generally about that space right now? Yeah, we, we don't uh, have a lot of loans on condo construction in Toronto. Uh, it tends to be the, 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 the purview of the, uh, the bigger banks, frankly. But, um, you know, still feel fairly good. If you've got the right kinds of uh, pre-sales, we'd still fairly feel fairly optimistic about, about that. But, of course, you've got to have the pre-sales in place, which, you know, themselves reflects this change in the market. Um, the, in regard to the condo market more generally, I think, you know, we've always joked that we've, uh, we've been negative wrong for about, you know, a couple of decades longer than we should have been. I think we still remember the early 90s, strangely, around equitable on, on this issue. Having said that, you know, we, we got a little more constructive around over the last two to three years, I would say. But we've still been super con concerned about um, things that might look like an Airbnb rental. So I think we tend to avoid that sector. Um, and, uh, you know, frankly, we've got very low, we're seeing very low applications in the condo sector right now. It's a very small part of the book. Um, so I, I don't think we, we're particularly concerned about how it might impact us. We're not seeing any um, delinquencies over and above what we're seeing more generally within the book within our condo sector. So it feels pretty good right now. Okay, got it. And, and my last question would just be, uh, you know, your deposits from EQ Bank, they, they grew very strongly and your liquidity was elevated at the end of the quarter. Is that more of a timing issue or are you deliberately holding higher levels of liquidity right now and should we expect that going forward if uh, EQ Bank continues to grow like it is? Yeah, I think as, as we mentioned on one of the previous questions, you know, we are holding a little more liquidity around the, the fairly recent growth in the EQ Bank deposits, just kind of a prudent measure, but I think we're also holding more liquidity just more generally the uncertainty of the economic conditions, again, prudence, so, you know, it's costing us money, but um, I'd rather make sure that we don't have an issue with, with liquidity. Um, and then there's, there's some timing issues as well at the end of the end of the quarter. You know, we've just recently done a deposit note, I think, which was just into the into the numbers. And uh, so, so, so a combination of things, but I think we, we you should expect us to continue to be holding relatively eloquent, um, elevated levels of liquidity for the next little while. Um, you know, there may be some opportunities we get more and more comfortable with the future outlook of the economy and, and um, that, we can, that we can bleed those down a bit because there is, there is a negative spread on, those, on that liquidity. Okay, that's it for me, thank you. Tihan Tunke from Stifle, your line is open. Hey, just uh, guys, a quick follow-up question from me. Um, Andrew, could you talk to an update on um, the transition to AARB, um, how that's proceeding, um, what the potential capital release could be, um, and what kinds of new business um, that can help you win going forward? So Ron is our uh, is, uh, executive in charge of the AIB program. Um, we continue to be pushing hard on it. Um, Ron, do you want to? Uh, yeah, so the, the resources that we pulled back from the program during the pandemic to ensure that we had the business lines properly resourced to deal with things 
are now back on the job, and we are fully re-engaged to, uh, to go full steam ahead in 2021. Um, I, I do think it would be premature to comment on levels of capital released, I mean, and, and the timing of that. I mean, a, a lot of that rests in the hands of the regulator and the amount of time they take to review and when they approve. Um, in terms of new business lines, we, we, we would have to have a lot of data around those new business lines to be able to model them and, and achieve ARB benefits. But um, I, I, so to, but I am very comfortable saying that the program, uh, for the same reasons we launched it uh, before the pandemic and before the recent discussions around uh, car guideline changes, it continues to make a lot of sense for us. Uh, we've spent the last couple of months mobilizing the resources to, uh, to, to pick up the program where we slowed down and, and go ahead full steam uh, throughout 2021, um, looking to advance it very, very materially over the course of, of calendar 2021 um, and, and be near to a position where, where we should be able to uh, uh, fully engage with the regulator and, and engage in that process. And just, I mean, just a reminder, I think we haven't said before that uh, this will make us more competitive in lower risk asset classes. So for example, you know, cash flowing, stabilized multifamily buildings, which are Part of our bread and butter, we will be more competitive in those areas. Um, and you know, we've, I think we've said in previous calls that if we were being risk rated on the same basis as the DCIPs on an AIB basis, our set um, one would be something like 19% compared to the 13 to 14%. So I mean, none of those metrics have really changed in terms of our sort of longer-term view. Not that we've updated them particularly for this this quarter. Great, that's it for me. Thanks. There are no further questions at this time. I'll turn the call back to Andrew Moore for closing remarks. Thank you so much, Marcella. Uh, we look forward to reporting uh, Q4 in sometime around late February. In the meantime, uh, we're always here to engage and answer your questions. Uh, and so I know Chadwick will want to get to know many of you. And goodbye for now. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.